That, is that okay? Fab. Um, just the nature of what we're speaking about today, I just want to pause and pray just one more time. Is that all right? Let's just pray. As we still our hearts and lives before you, Father, and lift our eyes to focus on your word, we come into alignment with your voice and your authority. And we begin right now in this moment by declaring that Jesus is the name that is above every single name. And at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We celebrate that Jesus' death and resurrection purchased our salvation and our freedom. And that he died and rose again, which he ascended through the heavens to be seated at the right hand of majesty. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We assert his authority in this house. We call for everything in this house to submit to the authority of Jesus. And we declare right now that the only spirit that is permitted to operate in this moment is the spirit of the living God. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to superintend everything that takes place and to enforce the authority of the kingdom and the authority of the kingdom's king. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to look at quite an important subject today. And as we do, we drop in on the story of Gideon and read together the moment that God brought Gideon into a life-changing encounter with himself and a life-changing encounter with purpose. And as we get ready to jump into the passage in Judges chapter 6, we're going to read the first six verses, but really the first ten verses paint for us the bigger picture. They set the context. They set the scene for us and introduce us to the setting into which God steps to launch Gideon into ministry. This is Gideon's launch pad moment. And it's actually quite amazing to look at what's going on in the moment that God steps into to launch someone into transformative ministry. So let's, let's begin there. We're going to read uh, Judges 6 and from verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the lands to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. As we read these verses, we recognize that the Israelites, that is the people of God, are not having a good time to themselves. In fact, these verses record a period of time in which the Israelites are facing a continual repetitive attack from their enemy, which is the Midianites and a whole bunch of other people that have ganged up together to make life as difficult as possible for them. Now, before we begin to unpack that a wee bit further, and we'll come to it in a moment, it's important for us to recognize some really significant information that is called out right off the bat, right at the very beginning. And in verse two, the power of the Midianites who are Israel's main enemy, the power of the Midianites is described as oppressive. And that's really important. Because it doesn't take a biblical scholar 
to know that when we approach these verses to draw life application from them, the obvious place that we begin to draw from or the obvious thing that we draw a life application in relation to is spiritual warfare and the tension that exists between the spiritual realms. Now, whether it's viewed as extreme language in our culture today and extreme language in our church culture today, the truth is that we as Christians have an enemy, Satan, the devil, and we who have been spiritually awakened in Jesus Christ exist and live within the tensions of the spiritual realms that are at work in our world. And living within such spiritual tension means that there are times in which we experience spiritual attack. There are times in which we experience the force of the devil seeking to immobilize, to assault our faith, to impact our journey in Jesus. And we refer to these moments and we refer to these struggles as spiritual warfare. Now, in the Pentecostal charismatic circles in which we exist, a huge focus can at times be placed upon the spiritual dimension of our faith in our journey in Jesus. And this is both good and bad. It is good for us to recognize that we are human beings with a spiritual dimension. We are spiritual beings. It is good that we recognize that there are spiritual forces at work in our environments. It's good that we seek to understand and even at times influence those aspects of our communities and cultures when God calls us to. However, it is not good And I would suggest it's even unhealthy to become obsessed with such dimensions. At times, in the Pentecostal world of Christianity, there can be too much focus placed upon the demonic. This is a demonic spirit here. This is a demonic spirit there. This is the spirit at work in this. And this is the spirit at work in that. Now hear me out. I believe in all of that. But let's also remind ourselves that demonic forces exist because God evicted one third of the heavenly host out of heaven, which means that there are twice as many angels of God at work as there are demonic angels at work. And sometimes we need to adjust that focus. We can become too focused with the demonic and that means that sadly, inadvertently, we emphasize the demonic and in turn almost magnify the power of the devil and his angels, making him greater than he actually is and making his influence and reach much more significant than is truthfully the case. We need to agree not to be people that see demons around every corner and the fingerprints of the devil and everything that goes wrong. Because in doing so, We can attach glory to the devil that he doesn't deserve. If we constantly look for spiritual solutions for practical problems, if we constantly attach the spiritual to practical issues, oh, my alarm never went off this morning. Oh, I missed the bus. The devil just didn't want me to be there. No, you just weren't organized. Oh, a spirit of poverty is on me because I've got no money less this month. No, you spent all your money. Oh, but I was attacked and tempted by a spirit and that's why I've fallen into this temptation. No, that's your sinful nature. If we keep constantly taking the approach of looking for spiritual solutions for practical problems, we can end up advocating responsibility for things that at times are just simply the outworking of bad decisions or the outworking of our sinful nature. We've got to stop looking for demons around every corner. Now that said, this passage does teach us about moments of spiritual warfare and we allow it to do so. 
And a couple of terms that are used in church circles when we come to talk about warfare and about such experiences are spiritual oppression and spiritual possession. And I know that there's loads of differing viewpoints regarding these terms, but helpfully this passage in Judges is really useful in bringing a differentiation between them. If we were to bring the most simplistic definition, then spiritual possession is the influence of a demonic force internally Spiritual oppression is the influence of a demonic force externally. Possession is when a demonic force takes up residence within an individual and seeks to control that individual's behavior, thoughts, actions, and reactions. Oppression, however, is completely different. Oppression is when a demonic spirit operates as an external force of opposition. And this passage in Judges helps to illustrate it brilliantly. In these verses, the Israelites are under attack from their enemy. And the passage specifically labels such an attack as oppression or oppressive. Their enemy is oppressive because their enemy comes as an external force. The Midianites and the other eastern people that are ganging up on them have not taken up permanent residence amongst them. They have not moved into their land and sought to try and take over or control from within. No, they come as an external force and seek to oppose and influence the people of God. And we see that, that's called out for us when the, uh, the passage describes us specifically when the attack takes place. In verse three, it says, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. Whenever. That's a time thing. So from time to time, periodically, the enemy came and invaded, which means they came from outside to inside. They came from out against them. And we also notice that the passage specifically calls out the effects of oppression. And it says they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing. So every time the Israelites plant their crops, the Midianites and the other eastern people invade the land with the aim and the mission of ruining their crops. Their goal was to prevent fruitfulness. And this went on for seven years. This wasn't a one-off experience. This was something that the Israelites learned to live with. For seven years, they prepared the ground. For seven years, they planted their seeds. For seven years, they tended the ground and invested themselves in their potential harvest. And for seven years, their enemy robbed them of the harvest. In short, the Israelites found themselves going through the motions, but never experiencing fruit. They sowed for harvest, but they reaped barrenness. And the sad thing is that this passage tells us that the Israelites adapted to this. Verse two says, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. The oppression that they were under from their enemy forced them to prepare shelters and caves, hideouts and mountains, even to build strongholds. These people were gripped with fear and anxiety. Depression of their enemy built a culture of fear amongst them and they adapted their lives to accommodate this culture. They were shaped by their oppression. They changed the way that they lived. 
They changed where they lived. They moved from the valleys and the plains to the mountains and the caves to try and find security amidst the abstract fear. Now, when we take a step back from this and look at what we've just outlined, we can actually learn some pretty valuable lessons about spiritual oppression. Yes, we must be careful not to see demons around every corner and to blame everything that goes wrong on the devil. However, the Bible is clear that we are caught in the tension between the kingdom of God and the work of the devil. We are told that we have an enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, who prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. In short, we exist in a spiritual warfare, and we will do until Jesus calls us home or he returns to take us to glory. Very often, we can feel the effects of that. We can feel as we journey in our Christian walk, we can feel the effects of that quite strongly. And most times when we do, what we find ourselves experiencing is spiritual oppression. And let me highlight that in the hope that it brings a measure of liberty and freedom, freedom from condemnation and guilt for many people, that actually very often when we find ourselves experiencing warfare and tension, we are facing spiritual oppression. It is in most cases a force external to ourselves seeking to oppose, seeking to impact, seeking to influence us or the situations round about us. In other words, what we experience most times in our Christian walk is not too dissimilar to what the Israelites were experiencing in Judges chapter 6. So there's some valuable lessons that we draw. Let me give you four really quick points. And the first is this. Often spiritual oppression occurs in moments of fruitfulness. Every time the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites invaded the land to destroy it. Every time they sought to be fruitful, they found themselves on the receiving end of opposition and the receiving end of attack. Likewise, in moments and seasons of being fruitful for God, we can often find ourselves on the receiving end of spiritual attack and oppression because the enemy doesn't like us being fruitful for God and he wishes to counteract and target the advancement of the kingdom. As we say that, let's point out something else that's quite important. His target is the advancement of the kingdom. We often hear Christians, Christian figures, Christian preachers talking about how they have been targeted and the devil is after them and the devil is attacking them because of who they are when in actual fact, the devil doesn't care who we are. His target is the advancement of the kingdom. It's not us he targets that we are something special. It's what God is doing through us. It's what God has released us to carry. It's the kingdom that's the target. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that we should never try or aim to be fruitful for God? Because if we do, we're going to get attacked? Absolutely not. Because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? If God is for us, who can be against us? In fact, no weapon formed against us is going to prosper. This reality doesn't mean that we should never strive to be fruitful. Rather, what it means is that in moments of ministry and fruitfulness, we have to guard our hearts against oppression, against temptation, and against spiritual attack. In the seasons when we see blessing unfolding around us, when we see the hand of God at work upon us, when we see the favor and the goodness of God running ahead of us, we must never think in those moments that we are above or beyond spiritual attack or opposition. 
In these seasons, as much as in any other, we've got to strive even further to press into God, to pray, to read his word, to hear his voice, to keep our hearts right and our souls focused where they should be. In most cases, it's in the trials and tribulations that we seek God the hardest. But the truth is, the walk of victory and functioning in the fullness of freedom involves a continued commitment to seeking a pure heart and clean hands. It involves a commitment to maintaining the strongest of connections with God in the good times and not just crying out for him in the bad. You've got to be willing to put in the work, put in the effort, put in the commitment, even at times when it seems like blessing is abounding all round about us without us having to strive whatsoever. In these moments, we've got to work to keep ourselves right with God because often those are the moments that we come within the crosshairs of opposition and oppression saddles up on our borders. The second point we learn is this, spiritual oppression, if left unchecked, produces barrenness. Every time the Israelites planted a crop, the Midianites set up a camp and ravaged it. Now there's nothing in the passage that suggests that the Israelites tried to combat the Midianites. There's nothing in the passage that suggests that they sought to take a stand against what was coming against them. It just said they hid in caves and mountains, and built shelters because the power of the enemy was so strong. And as a result, the enemy descended on the land and ruined their crops. While spiritual oppression often occurs in moments of fruitfulness, if it's not dealt with, it will bring fruitlessness. If spiritual oppression is left unchecked, what was meant for harvest will become barren which links us very nicely to point three. All too often, believers adapt their lives to accommodate their oppression. In the face of attack from their enemy, the Israelites built caves and strongholds. They adapted their lifestyles to accommodate their oppression. It became a way of life. And very often as Christians, we do the exact same. We tolerate the oppression that we're facing, even at times adapt who we are, what we are, and what we do around the oppressive force that we're facing. We adapt our lifestyles to accommodate our oppression, and in doing so, in a sense, we give it permission to operate in our lives. Now, as we've already mentioned, I ain't one of those people that sees demons around every corner, and I don't believe in labeling everything that goes wrong as a spiritual attack. But sometimes, those of us who are careful not to see the demonic in every calamity, then go to the other extreme and almost tolerate the spiritual oppression that we're facing, adapt to it, and therefore adopt it as a way of life. We've got to learn not to accommodate the devil's schemes, but to stand firm against them. We've got to learn to discern through prayer what is merely circumstantial within life, what is the flesh in operation, and what is in actual fact a spiritual attack. We have to become a people who are spiritually mature in our discernment. We're not fanatical. We're not demonically obsessed. We're balanced and rooted and able to identify the moments that the devil comes to attack. And when we do, we step up in our spirits to address it before it robs us of our fruitfulness in God and robs us of our fruitfulness in life. Now, the fourth point is not too dissimilar to the third, but it's important. And that is that spiritual oppression can alter the culture of the soul. The Israelites, they altered their lifestyles 
They sheltered up in mountains and in strongholds. And they did so because they were frightened. Clearly, a culture of fear moved in amongst the hearts of the people. It would not be an exaggeration to say that fear gripped the nation. What is interesting when we think of this is that according to the scripture, the attack of the Midianites was a periodic thing. But yet despite the fact that the attack only happened from time to time, the Israelite people built strongholds. They prepared shelters up in the mountains and in the caves. In other words, the attack might not be present, but the effects of those attacks were something that resided in their hearts. It was something that they lived with. Sometimes we can allow spiritual oppression to alter the culture of our souls. And we allow it in the sense that although the moment or the experience of spiritual attack is over, the effects of that are still very much present in our innermost being, i.e. the battle might be over, but we still bear the scars. And sometimes we allow the effects of those past struggles to impact our present journey as they begin to shape our thoughts, our perceptions, our interactions, even our beliefs. And that's because spiritual oppression can impact the culture of the soul. So the Israelites here in Judges 6, they're struggling with the oppression of their enemy. It's been an ongoing struggle for them. They are facing this constant struggle as a people. And as the scripture calls this out and paints for us a very bleak and stark picture of what's going on, the narrative then takes a stark turn. It takes a shift, if you like, in verse 11. And that's when we begin to read God bringing Gideon into an encounter. Let's read from verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abbey Ezraite, where his son Gideon was thrashing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? <laughs> Never asked that question. Where are all these wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but now how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Well, we recognize a shift in the narrative here, these verses do continue to build upon the foundation that has already been laid out at the start of the passage because what we saw in the Israelites we now see in Gideon in particular. Gideon is struggling under the oppression of his enemy. And we know that because he's sifting wheat inside a wine press. A wine press is not where you sift wheat, it's where you press wine. So Gideon is modifying his behavior and he's modifying his actions to accommodate his oppression. Wheat is supposed to be sifted on the top of a hill where you throw it up in the air and the wind blows the chaff away and the wheat falls to the ground. Gideon is inside a wine press. Wine presses were typically enclosed walled areas that were found at the bottom of hills. So this is an unconventional place to be engaging in the task that Gideon is engaged in. But we're told that the reason that he's in the wine press is because he's frightened. He's hiding what he's doing from the Midianites. Here are the signs of oppression in Gideon's life. 
He's altered his approach to his circumstances in order to accommodate the oppression he's facing. He's inside a walled area at the bottom of the hill where the task he is undertaking is virtually impossible to achieve. He is trying with all of his might to bring fruitfulness out of barrenness, but it's just not happening. He's going through the motions and nothing is taking place. I wonder, does that resonate? Permit me to change my language and be a wee bit more direct. Are you struggling under spiritual oppression? Without falling down the trap of seeing demons round every corner and attributing blame to the demonic for everything that goes wrong in life, but with careful, mature discernment and prayerful, balanced consideration, are you struggling with spiritual oppression? Has it become part of who you are? Are there ways in which perhaps maybe things in your world have been altered to accommodate that which is against you? Do you feel that you're trying and trying, but it just feels like you're going through the motions to no avail? Can you recognize ways in which perhaps the very culture of your soul has been altered by what you have been and what you are facing? There is a remedy for all of this. The remedy is really simple. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ to connect with his presence again, to discover his heart of love again, to hear his voice call our names again. See, that's what happened to Gideon. God turned up to Gideon. He's struggling in his oppression. He's altered his lifestyle to accommodate this. Even his very soul is impacted because he's hiding from his enemy. His actions are determined by a culture of fear. He's striving to bring some form of fruit out of a barren situation. He's struggling under oppression and God turned up for him. He turned up in his oppression and released calling and revealed purpose. And that's huge because we often think that for God to turn up and release calling For God to come up, turn up and reveal purpose, it has to be in the mountaintop experience of life. When all the spiritual ducks are in a row and we're straddling the edge of perfect holiness and purity. And that mindset comes from the fact that actually in our Christian culture, what we do is we take stories and testimonies that glamorize or mystify these experiences and we we, we put them on the pedestal. We glamorize the stories and the moments when heaven releases mandates and commissions with purpose. And we put them in pulpits and we put them on platforms and we write books about them. Times that folk are caught up to heaven and times that there's these flashes of light and booming voices and times in which people are in prayer and suddenly everything changes and God turns up and stands in front of them. And don't get me wrong, I'm not disputing any of those things. But when we begin to only tell the stories that have sprinkles of glitter everywhere, we begin to build a thought process that for God to use us, for God to call and commission us, for heaven to release mandate on our lives and stamp our hearts with purpose, we've got to be victoriously free we've got to be free from all oppression with hearts tuned into him lives gloriously liberated hearts bountifully fruitful and accomplishing for him in other words we come to believe that we've got to have it all together but Gideon did not and God turned up for him Gideon had none of those things neither bountifully fruitful nor living in profound victory in fact if you really understand Gideon He wasn't even living for God and God turned up for him. Look at the detail, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abbey Israelite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. 
When the angel of the Lord appeared, he said. Now, a quick note worth mentioning at this point is that in theological circus, we've co- circles, not circus, but in circles, although sometimes it does feel like the circus. In the circus of theology, we've come to recognize that any time the Old Testament makes reference to the angel of the Lord, it is referring to the pre-incarnate Jesus. If the Old Testament mentions an angel of the Lord, it's just a run-of-the-mill, everyday Tesco value angel. If it mentions the angel of the Lord, well, this isn't just any angel. This is Jesus himself turning up in Old Testament scripture. So when we read people having encounters with the angel of the Lord, we treat them as encounters with God himself, and that is exactly what Gideon had. He's inside the winepress. God, when he turns up, notice, is outside the winepress. And he speaks to Gideon, which means he interrupted Gideon. He interrupted him in his fruitless task and drew him out of the winepress. For Gideon and the angel of the Lord to have a conversation, Gideon would have had to have stepped out of the winepress, which means he stopped trying to sift wheat. Gideon's encounter with God put an end to his fruitless going through the motions. He stopped him dead in his tracks. He drew him out of the winepress. He drew him out of his culture of fear. He drew him away from that which accommodated the oppression of the enemy and he brought him to a place of being empowered and equipped to embrace his purpose and to receive his call. To fully embrace purpose, we've got to be ready to step out of fear and into faith. We've got to be ready to cease trying in our own strength to manufacture fruitfulness and instead just to surrender to the voice of God. We have to die to self, die to selfish ambition, die to human effort, die to striving and follow fully the favor of God. When we read the story of Gideon, ultimately we recognize that freedom for Gideon and the Israelites comes with the defeat of the Midianites in the next chapter. But truth be told, freedom from oppression for Gideon came right here in the winepress when he stepped out of it and into the purpose of God and the call for his life. That's when he found freedom. And you know, that's what God does. When we're caught in our struggles, he comes down. He turns up. He manifests his presence. Not to rebuke us for struggling. Not to chastise us for finding it difficult, not to tell us off for not getting it right or because we've not got it all together. No, he turns up in such a way that he interrupts us fruitlessly going through the motions. He draws us out of our culture of fear. He strips back that which accommodates the influence of the enemy and he brings us to a place where we can confidently embrace our calling and our purpose in him. The big challenge is when we hear his voice We've got to be willing to lay down the pitchfork and get out of the winepress. We've got to be willing to give up our religious routines and the lifestyles that we've created for ourselves. We've got to be willing to let go of the fears and the worries and the anxieties. We've got to be willing to change the ways that we've accommodated, the ways that we've even normalized the influence of the enemy in our lives and instead seek to connect with his voice, connect with his presence, and in doing so, connect with his heart. God called to Gideon and brought him into an encounter with his heart. Look what God says. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, 
When I read the story of Gideon, I think, there's nothing mighty nor warrior-like about this guy. He's not a warrior. He's not even a soldier. He's a farmer. A farmer who's hiding in a wine press because he's frightened. He's scared of being seen by his enemy. Yet this scaredy pants, who is neither warrior nor mighty, is called by God as mighty warrior. And that teaches us something quite important. God calls us and views us not in light of who we are or where we've been, but in terms of who we will become and where we are going. When God sees us, he labels us not with our past and not with our present, but he labels us by our potential. That's huge. When he views us, he sees us and he views us in light of our calling, in light of our purpose. And it is that which he calls out when he summons us out of barrenness and he summons us out of fear and he summons us out of bondage because he's calling us out of what is into what will be. That's what happens when God reveals purpose to us. That's what happens when he reveals a call upon our lives. He calls us out of what is to what will be. And that's the moment that freedom happens is when we begin the journey of moving from what is to what will be. That's when deliverance comes. He comes and he changes our definition. That which will define us is not going to be our past mistakes nor our current circumstance, but instead it's going to be the purpose and the call that he's releasing into our lives. It is our identity in God that brings true and lasting freedom to who we are. And here is our identity. We have not received a spirit that makes us slaves again to fear. But the spirit that we've received is one that testifies with our spirits about who we are. In other words, he testifies about the identity that we now hold. And here is our identity. We are children of the living God. We are children of the living God. And the spirit reminds us of our definition. And this brings freedom because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So he works in our innermost being to call within us, to testify to our spirits, to remind the innermost parts of us who we are. In other words, he works to change the culture of our souls. He calls, he ministers, he testifies in the innermost parts. He manifests within us that he and she who the Son sets free is free indeed that we have been chosen to bear fruit. We have been appointed to bear fruit, fruit that will last, not fruit that will fade with every spiritual attack. Not fruit that will turn into barrenness when we go through battles and tribulations. We have been appointed, anointed, chosen to bear lasting and abiding fruit. And when we embrace our identity in God, we begin to find true and lasting freedom and confidence in every battle and in every oppression to understand I am no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of the living God. We are not defined by our past. We are not even defined by our present. We are defined by our potential. In other words, we are defined by our purpose. So what is your purpose? What is the potential that God has stamped on your life and called to come to life within you? Get out of your wine press and put down your pitchfork. Cease in trying to manufacture your own fruitfulness. Just step into his purpose and find freedom. Look again at this statement from God. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The word with in the Hebrew, it means in conjunction 
or to be joined with. It's actually what God says to Gideon is this. The Lord is joined with you, Gideon. So when the Lord says, the Lord is with you, he's actually calling out in this moment a very powerful, very profound encounter and experience. He's calling out an infilling. He's calling out an overshadowing, an indwelling, an impartation. He's calling intimacy. He says that his person and fullness is going to be joined with Gideon. He's speaking here about relationship. He's speaking about abiding presence. He says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is joined to you, mighty warrior. The word mighty in the Hebrew means chief. The word warrior means force. God says to Gideon, the Lord is joined with you and you are a chief force. This is an amazing revelation here. Here we see that it doesn't matter what oppression you might be facing. It doesn't matter how big the storm is. It doesn't matter how dark the night is. It doesn't matter how evil it might feel. It doesn't matter what attack you might be under. When you connect with God, you're a force to be reckoned with. In fact, in moments of warfare, when you seek to pursue intimacy with him in the midst of that, when you seek to connect with him, when you seek an infilling of God and to rest under the shadow of who he is, when we seek to sit down at the table that he sets in the presence of our enemies and feast with him and commune with him, when we pursue intimacy with God in the face of attack, we become the chief force at work in that situation because we're joined to the God who doesn't know how to lose. (laughs) We are linked to the God who created the heavens and the air. We are connected to, hidden within the overshadowing of the God for whom the darkest day is as light to him and the night shines like the noon. We are joined to the everlasting, all-powerful God and in that conjunction, in that connection, we become the chief force at work, which means when we connect to him in the face of opposition, oppression retreats, bondage breaks and darkness lifts. When we are one with God, when we are joined to God, we are always the majority in every situation and we are the chief force at work within it. Let's wrap it up. God speaks again to Gideon and he says this to him in verse 14. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you'll strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. God says, go in the strength you have and find freedom from oppression. And Gideon says, pardon me, pal, but my clan is the weakest and I personally am the weakest in my clan. So I don't have any strength. Look at how God answers that. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be joined to you. Connected with you. See, when you connect with God in the face of opposition and oppression, you have all the strength and power that you need to find freedom from it. When you pursue intimacy with him, when you pursue a connection with him, You have all the power and all the strength you need to find freedom from that which comes against you. God says, I am with you. I am joined to you. I am one with you. Therefore, the strength that you have isn't actually based on who you are and based on what you have. It's based on who I am and it's based on what I have. 
I am your strength. I am the power that you need to find freedom in this situation. This is something we've got to understand. When we join with him in the moments of opposition and spiritual attack and spiritual warfare, it's not about what we have and who we are, it's about who we're joined to. It's not about our power and our might to fight this off. It's about the God that we belong to. It's about who he is and what he has. And he has a track record of never, ever losing and always winning. How amazing is it to recognize that lasting freedom for Gideon and subsequently the entire Israelite nation, lasting freedom came not because Gideon named and claimed it, not because he bound and loosed it, not because he decreed and declared it, but purely because he stepped into an intimate encounter with God and embraced his purpose. Does that challenge a little bit? I find that incredible. Now don't get me wrong, deliverance is very complex and can be at times. And yes, there are moments in which we need to bind and loose because the Bible tells us to. Yes, there are moments, I believe, in some cases where we need to decree and declare, not the way that we see it on the telly, but we need to decree and declare. Yes, there's moments in which deliverance is a process that involves us having to cast things out and deal with things, but what we've got to understand is that in all of those things, here's what we're doing, we're stepping further into intimacy with him. It's intimacy with him that brings the transformation. It's intimacy with him that brings complete and utter freedom. It's when we step out and not start trying to just be a shouting mouth, but actually in the face of all that comes against us, the winds that blow, the waves that rise up, the force that comes against us, the darkness that surrounds us, freedom is found when we look to him, when we reach for him, when we connect with him. It's when, as the psalm says, we find the table that he sets for us in the presence of our enemies. Get that picture of God. We're surrounded by enemies, here's what he does puts up the table and he gets out the tablecloth and he starts laying out the crockery because he's not impacted by those enemies he's not scared of those enemies he's at peace it doesn't impact him he impacts them so here's what he does he sets out the table and he pushes out the chair and he says come sup with me feast with me and when we in that moment connect with the God who is at peace and free from all that's going round about, do you know what happens? We connect with peace and freedom. We find deliverance. We haven't had to bind or loose this spirit and that spirit. We've just connected to the God that is an authority over all. And freedom comes. Are you struggling with spiritual oppression? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And right now, in the midst of all that's going on, he sets out the table and he says, come, child, sup with me, commune with me, connect with me, come have intimacy with me. And when we connect with him, we become the chief force at work in that situation because God is at work in that situation.